If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 as we look this Lord's Day uh, at that very message that Christ has given His life, that we might have life. And we find this in the Scripture, we find it in today's passage in Acts chapter 2. If you've been with us recently, uh, you know that we've just begun to walk through this book of the Bible. And as we walk through Acts, what we've seen so far is Jesus made a promise to His followers that the Spirit would come, and we looked last Lord's Day at how the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and, and that image of, of wind and fire, we, we looked at how all throughout the Scripture, from the beginning in Genesis up until Acts, we see this consistent message being unfolded of how the Spirit would come, the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit would come, that image of, of fire, the very presence of God when indwell believers. And today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, where we now have Peter preaching to the crowd. We talked last week about how at Pentecost, this was called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, Seven weeks of seven days, 49 days, then the 50th day was Pentecost, 50 days from Passover. And millions of Jews would come from all over the world there to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And as the Spirit came on the disciples there, the disciples began to speak the gospel, to share about the mighty works of God in known languages, languages of those who had gathered from around the world. And where we left off last week is is the crowd's response to that. They were amazed. The Scripture tells us indeed that some were perplexed. They were a bit confused. And others were actually mocking the disciples, accusing them of being into a little bit of wine and being tipsy and drunk and That's what was happening. And so where we pick up today is with Peter's sermon as Peter stands along with the apostles and then shares with the crowd that indeed they are not drunk, but they are filled with the Spirit of God. And he then shares with them what that means. And so if you would, out of reverence for the Word of God, if you're able, if you'll stand as I read for us from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. This is what the inspired Holy Word of God says to us. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not set one of his that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So they who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. If you would pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, this is the word you have given to the church today. Would you bless it as we study it? Would you help us to see the gospel in it? Would you help us, Lord, as we seek to apply it to our lives? We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a culture today where more and more, just because you go to a place that calls itself a church and you listen to someone who calls themselves a pastor, and they open up before them what they recognize as the Bible, even if those things take place, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to hear God's Word. It's become more and more popular for us to build churches that are based on attraction, based on trying to draw people in. And in that effort, many have abandoned what the Scripture teaches and many have tried to avoid those things which might rub people the wrong way, things that might push people away. Words like sin, themes like judgment, places like hell, acts like repentance are not spoken of so often in these churches. Rather, you're given steps to improve your life and, and, and ways to be a better fill in the blank. This is not a new phenomenon and yet it is one that sadly has plagued so many churches. I was watching not long ago a, an interview one evening uh, with a pastor of a church like this. In fact, it's one of the largest churches in our nation, growing very fast. And this pastor and his wife were being interviewed, and 
And the wife was celebrating and sharing about what she loves the most about their church. And she shared about how it's a place where, where everyone can come and everyone can feel welcome. And the interviewer asked her to explain that. So she went on to say that she had just met with a family the week before who had come to the church and who loved it and all felt very comfortable there. What was amazing, she said, about this family was that the wife had grown up in a Christian background. The husband himself didn't really believe in God. He was an agnostic. And the, the in-law or cousin or whoever was with them that day was a practicing Buddhist. And she said, isn't it great that they can all come together and all worship together and all feel comfortable doing that? Well, I think we would find a problem with that in light of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. People coming from radically different beliefs, those who deny the very uh, truth that the Scripture teaches, those who deny the existence of God should feel some amount of discomfort when the Gospel is preached. But sadly, so often, the Gospel's not preached. This isn't really a new phenomenon. In fact, some 20 years ago, a book was written by Pastor John MacArthur that talked about this plague in the church. It was called, Ashamed of the Gospel When Churches Become Like the World. In it, MacArthur noted then, 20 years ago, some of the ways churches were advertising themselves trying to draw people in. He said, for example, one church said that there's no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Another church said their services have an informal feeling. You don't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal was to make them feel welcome and not drive them away. Another church said this about themselves. As with all clergymen, our pastor's answer is God. But he slips him in at the end. And even then he doesn't get too heavy. No ranting, no raving, no fire, no brimstone. He doesn't even use the H word. Call it light gospel. It has the same salvation as the old-time religion, but a third less guilt. More and more what we see is that there's a trend in churches, pastors who won't mention words like hell and judgment, the consequence of sin. In fact, some people won't even mention sin anymore. And yet that's radically different than the sermon we see preached here at Pentecost by Peter. Peter does not preach a sermon to try to make people feel comfortable. Peter does not preach a sermon to try to make sure everybody's going to stick around. Peter preaches a sermon based on the Scriptures. And that is what God calls us to do as the church of Jesus Christ. And so today I want to walk through this sermon and look at it. Note how radically different it is than much of what is preached in so many places today. And then look at how then that applies to what we're called to do as followers of Christ Beginning with the first thing that we see here, number one, point one, Peter preached a biblical sermon. Now that may seem like the obvious. Well, shouldn't all sermons be biblical? But as I've already noted, so often they're not. So often people get up, pastors get up, they preach, but really what they do is talk and they just share with you how you can improve your life, how you can feel better about yourself. And yet what we see here is Peter's sermon is founded in the Scripture. And he begins, in fact, by sharing Scripture in light of the confusion that was taking place. As you recall, as we just mentioned, 
There at Pentecost, people are gathered and the disciples, being filled with the Spirit, are beginning to speak in other languages, known languages of those who are gathered there at that Pentecost gathering. And as they're speaking in these languages, people are amazed because they're hearing about the mighty works of God in their own language from somebody who doesn't speak that language. And as all this is going on, bystanders, people walking by are noticing it. And the Scripture says, some of them are even saying, you know, I I think those guys have had a little too much to drink. And so Peter responds to them and says, well, that's not the case at all. (laughs) These people are not drunk. They're not filled with new wine. In fact, Peter says it's not even the third hour of the day. That's about 9 a.m. Essentially what Peter's saying is there's going to be a feast, there's going to be a festival, there's going to be some wine there, but listen, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. That hasn't happened yet. These men are not drunk as you think. So what's taking place? How is Peter going to help them understand what is happening here? Well, Peter helps them understand by opening up to them the very words of God. And he does it by taking them to the prophet Joel. Now, I don't know how many of you have read Joel recently. It's a very short book. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. There's a collection of 12 minor prophets. We don't call them minor because of their significance. We call them minor because of their length. Joel is only about three chapters in length. I encourage you to read it today. It's a great minor prophet or great book of the Bible. And here's essentially what you find in Joel. Joel was speaking to the people of Israel at a time when great calamity had struck them. There had been a plague of locusts that had swept the land. And what those locusts did was ate every piece of vegetation they could find. Well, you can imagine an agricultural environment where people's entire livelihood was based on the agriculture that was devastating for the people of Israel. The locust, the plague of locusts was essentially a death sentence for the people of Israel. Now you try to put that in some type of relation to our world today. Most of us have never faced plagues. You've seen on the news in recent weeks, just the threat of a disease that can kill someone, how it has just made everyone crazy and scared and fearful. And that's something where a few people in our nation have been affected. Imagine what it would be like if there was a plague to sweep through not only this city, not just this state, but our entire nation that wiped out, for example, all the agriculture. Imagine what it would be like to go to church that Sunday. Imagine what sermon you might hear. I imagine most pastors would get up and try to bring some type of comfort to people. I would try to bring some type of reassurance that, listen, this is bad, but God is still in control. Perhaps some would try to use uh, witty sayings like the one church that advertised itself and say, you know, don't worry about it, that there's always a valley before the hilltop, it's going to be okay, turn that frown upside down, it's all going to work out. But notice what Joel does. When you read the book of Joel, what Joel essentially does in the midst of devastation is he looks to God's people and he says, listen, it's going to get worse. (laughs) This plague that you faced is just a foretaste of the total and utter destruction that's going to happen to the nation of Israel if we don't repent. He looks to grieving, mourning, suffering, hurting people. 
And he says to them not, feel better. He says to them, it's going to get worse if something doesn't change. Something's going to happen if we don't repent. And he says to them, we need to turn from our sin and our wicked ways and we need to repent. And then he tells them a great promise. He says, listen, the day's coming when God's going to restore everything. The day's coming when not only will this plague be reversed, but there's this promise of the day of the Lord. And when the day of the Lord comes, Joel says, the Spirit of God is going to dwell here. He's going to indwell the followers of God. And He speaks towards that day. And so Peter faces that crowd who is suspicious that these men are drunk. And he says they're not drunk. They're filled with the Spirit. And this is exactly what Joel was talking about. Now how was Peter able to connect those dots? Do you think Peter that morning got up and said, well, I I think I'll read the scroll from Joel today and I think I'll preach on that. I think the better observation would be that Peter, along with the other disciples, spent time reading the Word of God. Spent time studying it and seeking to understand it. Remember what we learned about what Jesus did after His resurrection. He spent time with the disciples. He opened up the Bible to them. He helped them to see how all these things in the Old Testament pointed to Him. On the road to Emmaus, He talked to those disciples about how all the prophets and what they said pointed towards Him. Perhaps on that road to Emmaus, Jesus said, You remember Joel? You remember what Joel wrote about the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord's here. The Spirit is coming. And then the disciples would spend time talking about that and thinking about that and understanding what God's Word would teach them. That the day indeed would come when the Spirit of God would be poured out. And as the Spirit of God was poured out, those Spirit-filled believers would then also be Scripture-filled believers. You notice that's the first evidence we see of the Spirit's filling in this sermon by Peter. Is that his Spirit-filled sermon is a Scripture-filled sermon. And that's an evidence of what the Lord does in us as we're filled with the Spirit. Peter says, these men aren't drunk, they're filled with the Spirit. The Scripture says to us, that's exactly what we're called to do. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and do not be drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, it's dissipation, it's nothingness. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, this is the mark of being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns. And so, what he says is, when you greet one another, greet each other with the Word of God. How do you do that? He says, when you're greeted with the Word of God, respond with the Word of God. How do we do that? We do that By knowing what God's Word says. If we don't know what God's Word says, it's very difficult then to share the Word of God with others. What we find as a mark of the New Testament church is they were Spirit-filled and they were Scripture-filled and we're called to do the same today. We're called to know the Word of God and to share the Word of God. I was at a preaching conference not long ago and the pastor shared about the the tradition he grew up in, which was a bit different than what most of y'all have probably grown up in, that in that tradition, the, the pastor uh, would announce to the church beforehand the text that was going to be preached on, 
And that for those leaders in the church, and he said especially for the deacons in his church, they needed to be ready to preach on that passage. And so the preacher, before he got up to preach, might just walk over and tap one of those deacons on the back, letting them know that they were preaching instead of the pastor that day. John, you want to preach today? I mean, imagine that. You just get the nod. You know, Roy, come on up. You ready? Acts chapter 2, buddy. It's yours. And most of us don't come prepared for that. And most of us didn't grow up with that expectation. But we're all called to be ready to share the Word of God. And the question is, are you, am I, ready to share the Word of God? And maybe you're not ready to preach today on Acts chapter 2. But are you ready to share the Word of God with another? Or are you ready to talk to someone about what the Scripture says? If someone talks to you about the Scripture, are you ready to have a conversation with them about it? See, sadly, in the culture of the church today, the answer to those questions is no. Sadly, in our culture today, so oftentimes we spend time talking to each other about God, reading books that talk about God's Word, getting bumper stickers that have God's Word on them, getting t-shirts with God's Word on it, putting verses up different places, and yet we spend very little time actually opening up the Word of God, reading it, studying it, and seeking to apply it to our lives. And so the thought of getting up and sharing from it terrifies us. Some of us, because the thought of getting up and sharing anything terrifies us. But for many of us, it's because we're not sure what we would say. Because we haven't spent enough time praying through the Word of God, studying the Word of God, be ready to talk to others about the Word of God. And yet that is the call that God has put on our life. So what do you do with that? Well, I would encourage us all today to consider how well do you know God's Word? How much time do you spend in it? We see here a Spirit-filled Peter getting up and immediately the overflow is the Scripture that he spent time in and he shares that Scripture. Are you ready to share Scripture with someone today? The Scripture says of itself that we should be. And yet here's the reality. So often we'll go to a bookstore and we'll try to find that book that's going to get us excited about our relationship with the Lord. I've had people ask me many times, Pastor, I, I really just need a really good book that's going to help me uh, just get excited about my faith and it's going to help me get excited about the Bible. And what, what book would you recommend to me? And I'll ask them, well, do you own a Bible? Well, yeah. Well, then you already have that book. <laughs> have you memorized it already? Now, I say that. I haven't memorized the whole Bible. But I read it. And it's foundational. And yet... So often we're drawn towards other things that talk about God but aren't actually Scripture themselves. And so if you go out today and write a book about what Jesus has said to you, if you go out and write a book about going on long walks and hearing from God and then write down what God says, you will sell millions of copies and many of you will read that book. And yet this book we have in front of us is the very Word of God where Jesus has indeed spoken and we spend so little time in it. How do we change that? We change it by simply starting to read it. And so if you have no habit today of reading the Word of God, start by reading a verse a day. And you might say, well, a verse, that's not much. What's a verse more than you read yesterday? And start there. 
And then read a few verses. And then read a chapter. And then start working your way through different books of the Bible. And then perhaps read through the New Testament. Then read through the Old. And then read the whole Bible. But step your way into it. And so often we go from nothing to all. So we think, well, I've, I've got to read the Bible and I'm not reading the Bible, so I'm going to read the Bible next year. <laughs> and that works out about as well as that health club we sign up for. <laughs> Goes well for a few weeks, a few days, and then we kind of drift off in the books of the law. I would encourage you to come up with a goal that simply has you in the Word of God each day. And as you do, what you find is that all of this fits together. All of these writers, all of these books, God, through the power of His Spirit, has put all this together to tell one story about one Savior. And there's a great danger when you don't spend time reading this Word. And the danger is this. Imagine you were to go home today and you took a thousand-piece puzzle and you dumped that puzzle out on a table. Now, if you dump that puzzle out, are you going to be able to look at that and go, yeah, that's a thousand pieces. <laughs> Probably not. Are you going to be able to look and see there's a few pieces missing or there's a few extra pieces here? Probably not. When do you find those things out? Usually at the very end of the puzzle, don't you? You got the whole thing put together except you realize, ah, that one piece is gone. Or maybe you start to get it put together and you're like, where do these extra five pieces come from? You don't know whether you have more or less until you put the pieces together. And that is the exact situation we are in with the Word of God today. So often, we look at God's Word as a bunch of pieces. So here's something I learned in Sunday school when I was a kid. And here's something from a sermon I heard preached one time. And, and here's something I read one time. And it's a bunch of pieces. And the danger there is we are easily deceived when someone comes along and they say, oh, that piece there, that's not true. Oh, you need these extra ones. Oh, you know what? Here, here's an extra revelation in addition to the Scriptures. You need to put some of that in there. Oh, you know, that part about Jesus really being God, let's take that out. And we look at that table and we don't know the difference because we've never tried to put the pieces together. Friends, we put the pieces together by simply sitting down on a consistent basis and reading the Word of God. And we see the significance of that in Peter's sermon. It was a biblical sermon. We see point two. He preached a Christ-centered sermon. Here Peter tells the people gathered at Pentecost that the prophet Joel said the day was coming when the Spirit will come. And notice what he said in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter goes on to say, let me tell you what the Lord's name is. His name is Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain to them about the Lordship of Jesus. But notice how he does it. He doesn't try to make any friends here. He doesn't try to make them feel comfortable. He basically says this. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know, this Jesus, you crucified him. He was put on the cross by your hands. He points to them directly and says, you are guilty of crucifying Jesus. And yet, what does he also say to him? He says, but God is sovereign. And in God's providence, 
This happened according to his definite plan and his foreknowledge. He takes us all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the garden where Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God, where God then removes them from the garden, but He says to them, the day will come when there will be a Redeemer and He will step on the head of the enemy. He forecasts for them the Gospel in Genesis 3. We see the fruition of it here in the book of Acts. Here, Peter tells these men that all of this comes down to their understanding that Jesus Christ indeed was the Messiah, that Jesus Christ was the one they crucified, and that Jesus Christ is the one that God raised from the dead. And that is the foundation of His sermon, the resurrection of Jesus. Notice what He says about Jesus. He quotes David from the Psalms, and He quotes how David spoke of the Lord, and then David said, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That word corruption means death or destruction. And so some might read that psalm and think David speaking of himself. David saying that God's not going to let him be destroyed. That God's not going to let him see death. But what's the problem with that? Peter says the problem is David died. And David's bones are buried in a tomb Peter, in essence, says, listen, David's dead. His bones are in a tomb. If you want to go with me right now, we can go see him. And so he says, David is speaking of one who would not be conquered by death. He's speaking of one who indeed himself conquered death. He's speaking about the Holy One, the Messiah. He's speaking here about Jesus. And he says, that's why... You need to respond to Jesus. Because Jesus has indeed conquered death. And Jesus has indeed been resurrected and risen from the dead. And in essence, Peter saying here, that is what our faith rests on. And friends, that is what our faith rests on. I remember a seminary professor teaching about the resurrection and sharing a story of how one day he had a student come to him and this student was very troubled. The student said he was really wrestling with his faith and struggling in his faith and and he just wasn't sure that he was qualified to be a minister because of some of the things he wrestled with. And so the professor said, well, tell me, what, what is it you're struggling with? He says, well, I'll say this. He said, if somehow archaeologists found the bones of Jesus buried in a cave and they were able to prove these were the bones of Jesus, He says, I'd probably go out and get drunk and live like a wild man. The professor looked at him and said, I would too. (laughs) Because our faith rests on the resurrection. Now some of you hear that and say, oh, you've got to have faith no matter what. But listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. In chapter 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, so if we find the bones of Jesus somewhere, Paul says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 19, if if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why does Paul say that? Because the entire gospel rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, some of you may have been brought up to believe that the gospel, a response to the gospel, becoming a Christian, was some type of process that looked like this. 
you feel bad, you want to feel better, come to church, we're going we're gonna to help you feel better, you've got to have more faith, you've got to believe, and God's going to clean you up and, and, and hang out with us because we're better, we're not, but hang out with us, we're going to help you out here. And so we come into the church thinking, if I can just try harder, if I can do better, if I can stop doing this and start doing this, then maybe somehow I'll stand before God one day and and on those scales that everybody imagines, that good and bad, maybe my good will outweigh my bad and I'll be okay. That is not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel says, on your best day, on my best day... (laughs) we are worse than we can imagine that we are. The Gospel says no matter how hard you try and I try, we can't make ourselves good. Now you might think, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good today. I'm not doing what this other person's doing. You might look around and think, well, that one over there, there you know, I like that one. I'm not going to say look to the front or back row because that bit me last time I said it because people really thought I was talking about somebody. So imagine it this way. If you think that you indeed are going to somehow earn merit before a holy God with your works, if you think that you're doing pretty good in your own efforts, imagine this. What if somehow, I've used this illustration before, what if somehow I was able to take this microphone here today and somehow we could hook you up to a device where this microphone could actually translate your thoughts so that we could all hear them audibly. And I said, you know what, I'm going to give you $500 if you'll hook up to this microphone for just 30 minutes. Let us all hear what you're thinking for 30 minutes. Anybody want to do that today? I wouldn't do it for $5,000 for five seconds. Why is that? You know what you think. You know on your best day, you know how you can sit down and read the Word of God and then something comes in your head that's wicked and you think, why am I even thinking that? You can be driving down the road and all of a sudden something comes in your head that you did 30 years ago and you're like, why why can't I forget that? That reminds us of how utterly lost and depraved we are in our own efforts that no matter how hard we try, we can't save ourselves. And so here Peter says, listen, we crucified the Christ, but there's hope in the resurrection. Because in the resurrection... Christ did not say, try harder, try harder, work harder. Christ said to us in the resurrection, I will get on that cross that I don't deserve. And I will die for the sin that every one of you has committed. And then I will give you my righteousness that you don't deserve. (laughs) We deserve a death we don't get and we receive righteousness we don't deserve. It's a pretty good deal for us. And it's the great exchange that takes place in the gospel of Jesus Christ but it doesn't happen on its own. It happens as we respond to it. And that's the third point here in your notes that you see in Peter's sermon. Peter calls for a response. Peter says that they, the Scripture tells us they were cut to the heart. They heard this preached and God through His Spirit, He, he spoke to them and they were cut to the heart. And they basically say to Peter, what, what do we need to do? And notice what Peter tells them. Peter does not say, well, you need to start going to church for one. (laughs) Peter doesn't say, well, you need to stop listening to that and stop watching that and stop drinking that and stop doing that. 
What does Peter say? Peter does not tell them you need to clean up your life from the inside and hope that somehow that works its way into your heart. Peter says your heart needs to change and that will work itself out and all this other stuff then will be taken care of. And Peter simply tells them to repent. That word in the Greek means to change your mind. I was thinking this and I've changed and now I think this. I think it's illustrated better in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for repent means to actually change your direction. A repentance in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word means you are walking this direction and something causes you to stop and turn around and walk the opposite direction. That is a picture of repentance in the believer's life. Because every one of us in this room, we are born walking away from God, walking towards sin and destruction. And the Scripture says if that's what we want, that's what we can have, and ultimately it will destroy us, and we will be distanced from God forever and under His wrath for eternity. But if we will repent, if we will turn from that sin and turn to God, then that is where we have the hope of the Gospel. It's not just a call here in this sermon by Peter, it's a call throughout the Old Testament. The prophet Joel, as he was speaking to these people who were devastated, who'd lost so much, what's he tell them? He says, you need to repent. He says to them, return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Sometimes I'll talk to people about the Gospel, and they'll say to me, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I don't know if God can forgive this. The Word of God says, God knows better than you know where you've been. And God knows indeed better than you do the full consequence of your sin. And the Scripture says, there is no place you can go that is so far that the reach of God cannot find you. The prophet Joel says, God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and He's abounding in steadfast love. The grace of God, the amazing grace we sang of today, is completely sufficient to save even the worst of sinners. Peter, as he shares this point, calls those that are there to respond through repentance. He calls them to baptism. Baptism in the Scripture is a picture of what it is the Gospel does in our lives. In Romans chapter 6, it's very clear. When we go beneath that water, we are being buried with Christ. That cleansing work of the water symbolizes the cleansing work of Christ. And when we come out of that water, we are celebrating the resurrection. We are celebrating the new life we have in Jesus Christ. I wish that the creek that ran through town was about four or five feet deep when it's not flooding, raining. So we could just go out there and do our baptisms. Because that, I think, would be so much better a picture to, than what we see in the Scripture. Because baptism for the believer was them repenting and then going and getting in that water in public in front of everybody walking by and saying, listen, the old Richard's dead and there's a new Richard here and I'm identifying myself publicly with Jesus Christ. We lose a bit of that 
when we have walls around the baptismal. And that's why I always encourage people when they're baptized here, invite your friends, invite your family, bring anybody that will come so they can see you give testimony to the changing work of Jesus Christ in your life. But that's what it signifies for us. Peter Hare says, be repentant, be baptized. And then he reminds him of the promise that Joel gave in his prophecy. And then you will be spirit-filled. You will be Scripture-filled. You will have the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, that promise that God made, Christ made of the Counselor who would come after Him. You will receive the fruition of that. And then notice this in verse 40. I I like this verse. Some of you might not like this as much. He, He preaches a sermon. He essentially gives the invitation. He calls them to respond. He says, repent and be baptized. And then notice what he does. He kept on preaching. (laughs) The Scripture says, then he kept exhorting them and he kept saying to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He just kept going. And most of y'all, well, it's already past 12. You're you're looking at the watch and you're trying to figure out where you're going to eat lunch and and we start getting into the invitation song. If you were going to slip out the door, maybe not today because I just pointed it out, but you know, usually you kind of slip out there. Well, what if we are? That was point one. Let's keep going. (laughs) Now, what Peter's doing here is, is not what some of you may have experienced in a church before where the pastor's just going to keep offering that invitation until someone eventually comes, you know, just as I am 12th time, 13th, you know. And finally, someone in the back says, okay, I'm hungry. I've got to come forward because I'm never going to get out of here. But that's not what Peter's doing. Peter is so overwhelmed with the reality and the need of the gospel that he will not stop speaking of the Lord. He is so burdened for the people that are there. He realizes that apart from repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, they will spend eternity in a very real hell. Peter is not afraid of the words that so many are afraid of today. The the H word. Sin. Judgment, and yet the Scripture speaks so clearly of these things. And when we don't speak so clearly about them, it's no wonder we never talk to people about our faith. Because maybe we think if we don't talk about judgment and hell, maybe it just doesn't exist and they'll be okay. The Scripture says that there is only one way that we will spend eternity with God in heaven, and that is through Christ His Son. Peter here reminds us of our need to repent, and then we see evidence of repentance. In in verse 41, those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a pretty good day. How was church today? Well, we had 3,000 saved. How about you? Well, you know, 3,000, that's pretty good. (laughs) We look at that number and we think, wow, look, 3,000. I was talking with someone this morning and we were talking about how at Pentecost, we don't know the exact number, but historically, chances are in Jerusalem during this feast, there were millions of people. Now, certainly millions could not hear Peter and the other apostles preaching but chances are more than 3,000 did. And this is what we see consistently in the Scripture. We see Jesus Himself bearing witness to the Gospel and people not believing. And that should remind us of something and that should wake us up to something, friend. It is entirely possible for you and I 
to sit in this church from the time we are born until the time we die and hear the gospel preached and think we're okay and serve on committees and teach classes and speak about the gospel. It is entirely possible to do all that without ever having truly repented and turned from our sin. Jesus himself says this. He says, one day there's going to be people who stand before him and they call him Lord and they say, Lord, remember, remember that time we cast out demons in your name? That's pretty good, wasn't it? Lord, you remember that time that, that we performed miracles in your name? Wasn't that amazing? And the scripture says, Jesus himself says, on that day, I will say to them, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. And that to me is one of the scariest passages in all the Scripture. Because it reminds me, I can preach this gospel every Sunday. I can counsel from this book every day of the week. And I cannot know Jesus. I'm not asking you today about your Sunday school attendance. I'm not asking you if you're a lifelong member of this or any other church. I'm asking you, have you truly turned from your sin? Have you truly repented? Have you followed through with that in obedience to the Lord through baptism? Do you have a desire to read the Word of God, to tell others about Him? Is the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life? Or today, are you just going through the motions you go through every Sunday? You can go through those motions and be fine with us today, but you won't be fine before the Lord one day. And I'm a lot more concerned about that day than I am about what people here think about you today. And so I would ask you to consider, have you truly responded to the gospel of Jesus? And have you had, if you have, that's, that's great. But are you telling others about that gospel? See, every one of these 3,000 had a name and a face and a family. It's easy for us to just look at that numbers and number, but you start looking at it that way and you start thinking about how many more than 3,000 would be changed. Somebody's dad heard the gospel and repented that day and came home a changed man and that family changed forever. Somebody's rebellious child that day heard the gospel during that feast in Jerusalem and they came home a changed person. That is the work that the gospel does and it continues to do that today. And the people in your life, the people in my life, some you know casually, others you know very well, who aren't in this or any other church today, they desperately need to hear this gospel. And by the grace of God, God will call some of them and He will save as they repent and as they believe. And He has asked, He's commanded you and I to share this gospel with them. If you've not responded to it, we invite you to respond. If you have responded to it, have you told others? During this time of invitation, we want to ask you to consider those questions. To come as the Lord leads, to repent as He leads, to be baptized as He leads, to come and join this church fellowship as He leads. For every one of us, this is an opportunity to consider and respond to God's Word. I ask you again, pray, 
by name for those people in your life who don't know the Lord. Pray for them. Pray that God would work in their life. And pray that God might strengthen you through the power of His Spirit as He did Peter to proclaim the great truths of God to them. Remembering it's not up to you to save anyone. It is the work of God in His Holy Spirit. If you would stand together as we pray to that end. Father God, we do ask in Jesus' name that you would do a work that only you can do. Lord, that through the power of your Spirit that you would draw us to repentance and faith. And for any here who's yet to confess Christ, Lord, I pray that you would work through your Spirit in their life and that you would show them their desperate need for salvation. Help them to understand, Lord, that Christ has paid the penalty for them on the cross and they need to repent and call Him Lord. Lord, for those of us who have, would you burden us, would you overwhelm us to, to be people of your word, who not only read it and study it, but share it with others. Lord, would you remind us not just today, but every day, this week and next week and those weeks to come of those people you've put in our lives who desperately need to hear the gospel. And Lord, would you burden us that, that it's our responsibility, it's not someone else's. We can't pass that buck to another. But Lord, we, we need to go to them and talk to them. Lord, would you help us to see that need during this time of invitation. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.